Welcome to the program, Piers Cunningham with you. I'm joined by consultant urologist at Box Hill Hospital, Mr. Jeffrey Wells. G'day, Jeff. Hi, Piers. Lovely to be back with you again. Very happy to have you back, Jeff, as always, and um, appreciate your time this afternoon. And we've just sat and watched this presentation by the government and particularly Dan Andrews and his chief medical officer, Brett Sutton, also uh, Martin Foley, the health minister, giving Melburnians and Victorians um, more widely a, an idea, a so-called roadmap, which they've said is is not binding. They've said that it's not law. It's, it's a target, if you like. It, it's literally a roadmap. There's plenty of vagueness in it. There's plenty of room for changes along the way. What were your overall impressions of it, Jeff? I must say, Pierce, I found it a little, a little confusing. It's somewhat disconcerting that there's an enormous amount of confusion out there now because we have increased number of cases. When we started the lockdown, we only had five or ten cases. We went into this lockdown that was going to be short and sharp and we were going to beat this disease. Now, after weeks of this lockdown, we've moved from the elimination strategy to a non-elimination strategy and we've got 500 cases. So a lot of people are quite concerned, they're quite fearful, there's a certain amount of numbness and I think we it's not clear in which direction we're going to go. I think people basically want to get outside, exercise, they want to be able to speak with their families, they want their families to be able to come around. So there's a little bit of improvement. I think the, uh, the, the restrictions for driving have gone up from, I think, 20, 15 kilometres we can drive. In the near future, we can have people around at, at our homes. So this is all well and good, but it still doesn't seem to be a significant amount of confidence within the government. There seems to be a fair bit of disputing between different ministers. Say, take, for instance, Pierce um, Schools. Mm. James Molino is very keen for the schools to be uh, opened. And as you know, we've spoken about this in the past. And personally, I'm passionate about getting children back to school. So I think um, when the next term uh, opens up, which is in about 10 days, I think year 12s are going back to school, which is terrific. But I mean, basically, we want all the children to, to be going back to school. And we're having this drip, drip, drip method of where they can go back to school for one or two days and then it's going to maybe increase in a couple of weeks depending on the numbers. Well, this isn't helping the anxiety and the distress that's occurring in, in our uh, young children, teenagers in particular. So from that point of view, I found it actually quite disappointing. Mm-hmm. And then the, the other thing that interested me, um, Pierce, was the discrepancy between James Moeno and Brett Sutton. So I think Brett Sutton is actually extremely conservative about uh, opening up. Mm. He obviously has his reasons for this. As we said previously, I'm not sure who's giving Brett Sutton the information. Now, the information probably, it's certainly not coming from doctors at the coalface, because as you know, we haven't been asked about this, which we've pleaded with the government to let us be involved, but uh, we're not getting, we haven't got anywhere from that point of view, and we certainly will not be getting anywhere in the future, I can guarantee you that. But the epidemiologists give views that their modelling is very variable, and I don't think it's consistent. 
So we've had coincidence in the past, you know, about a month ago when the Delta virus was spreading with children, so children couldn't go uh, to parks. So this broke the camel's back, didn't it? There's a lot of outrage about that. And then all of a sudden children, even though we've got more numbers, are allowed to go to parks. Yeah. So it doesn't seem to be a lot of common sense from the from the modelling. And basically, I think the epidemiologists are, are sort of winging it in their own way. I don't think they know any more about it than basically you or I do. Jeff, why would uh, they... I know that the Doherty Institute informed the federal government about the, gov- the federal roadmap. Why has the Victorian government used the Burnett Institute? Is it them choosing a... Burnett's local, isn't it? It's a Melbourne-based institute. So is Doherty. Doherty is as well, Mm. yeah. I'm just wondering if if they're choosing, if they're handpicking an organisation that's more likely to be give them recommendations in line with what they want to hear. I mean, is that overly cynical? No, I don't think it's overly cynical at all, uh, Piers. I think there's an enormous amount of cynicism in politics and all this. And if you ask three different epidemiologists, they'll give you three different reasons as to um, how quickly we should open up. So there's, as we said, there's a huge amount of variability, and it's very difficult to be able to ascertain who's who's heading in the right in the right direction. The whole thing is complicated, and and it's not an easy thing to manage a virus of this nature and and to to model it. All the variables that can come into play about a, a highly transmissible it's a complicated yes. matter and trying to trying to get the public to understand that is no easy feat either it has been suggested the government has lacked transparency and there have definitely been calls from the opposition side of politics in victoria from shadow health minister georgie crozy has been you know she's called for, for uh, transparency and that people Absolutely. people deserve to have transparency when they're being asked to make the kind of prolonged and continuing sacrifices that Melburnians are. But just going to, you know, what you said about the fact that we've got 500 cases when it was supposed to be a short, sharp lockdown. So clearly lockdown hasn't worked against Delta. One of the key findings of the Burnett Institute of Modelling, which was released today, uh, it says, it predicts that based on current epidemic growth rate, a peak in seven-day average daily diagnoses of between 1,400 and 2,900 is estimated to occur between the 19th and the 31st of October. They're saying the numbers are going to diminish. That's saying even without any easing of restrictions, there is a moderate risk of exceeding health system capacity. Now, with those numbers, a peak in seven-day average daily diagnoses of 1,400 to 2,900 uh, in late October... The corresponding peaks in hospital and ICU demand were 1,200 to 2,500 and 260 to 550 respectively, with 24% of simulations resulting in hospital demanding exceeding 2,500 beds. It's suggesting that the health system won't cope with this. One of the big criticisms, and I wanted you to comment, because I know that your hospital... uh, There's some changes at Box Hill Hospital, I believe, because of the impact of COVID... In the Eastern Health Network, there's nursing st- uh, staff shortages. Right. Now, part of the reason for this is nurses are actually getting paid an, an enormous amount more to leave the hospital and go and work in COVID testing areas. Right. So that's that's one area. I mean, I know that they've got to man the uh, the, the testing stations around the state and, and within Melbourne, but at the same time, I mean, if that means that you, you reduce your hospital capacity at a time when you desperately need those people, 
in the last 24 hours, Jeff, they've been talking about getting surf lifesavers to, uh, yes. to to work, potentially even work in ICU. Yeah. Well, there's no question, Pierce. The nurses are getting about $100 an hour to work in a testing site. And in the public hospital system, they're generally getting paid 30, $37 to $40 an hour. Right. So it comes down to economics, and there has been a significant number of nurses leaving. And as we've also spoken about the furlough system, which is a new word that we've heard, where people in the hospital, if they get exposed <clears throat> to someone with the virus, if they say they're a close contact, then whether they are uh, vaccinated, double vaccinated or not, they have to, as a result of being exposed to a, a primary contact, then they have to self-isolate for two weeks. Significant numbers of nursing staff and doctors have occurred in the public hospital system. This is taking people away from the coalface. And I don't know how they're going to get around this, but if you're double vaccinated, then I think the rules should change somewhat. There's a, a term they're now using, breakthrough. So you've, you've got the virus even though you are double vaccinated. Well, this can occur, but it's very difficult because... We certainly need people at the coalface working and if there's exposure and they're all having to isolate for two weeks, then it just doesn't seem to be a workable situation to me. Going back to what Georgie Crozier, the Shadow Health Minister, has been saying, that the government yes. promised a very significant increase in ICU capacity 18 months ago when we dealt with the very first wave of the pandemic in Australia. What's your impression of preparedness of the Victorian health system for opening up? This will be something that really could be very damaging to the government because if Dan Andrews is found to have really just been very sloppy or slow or, or negligent in actually making sure that not only were the, the facilities there in hospitals that were needed, the ICU facilities, but also the people trained, the numbers required to operate them being available... And I mean, the whole argument for lockdown was that you were buying time. So Victorians have endured nearly eight months of lockdown. I think it's almost the longest and hardest lockdown of any city in the world. If that time, if that time that was being bought has been wasted by the government and we find ourselves short of capacity and short of the facilities we need to deal with Delta and to enable us to open up, then, that, then that's, that's, that's adding a terrible insult to injury. What do you reckon? Well, a couple of things. I mean, as we've spoken about previously, I really don't believe that uh, lockdowns are a benefit to the community in any significant way. I think that lockdowns cause more harms than good, as we've spoken about previously. I think with ICU, there's two issues. <clears throat> number one is the number of ventilators. Now, I don't know how many new ventilators the government's acquired, but at one stage there was some talk that they were going to acquire, I think, 4,000 ventilators. Now, whether this has occurred or not, I'm not sure, but I don't think it has. And then, as we've said, at the same time, we're talking about uh, the number of nursing staff and medical staff that are available to look after patients. As I said, if we have this furlough system that's going on where self-isolation is necessary, then we, this is going to be difficult. The, the thing that we do know, though, that the vaccination rate is increasing all the time. And we certainly know that if the patients are vaccinated, the patients dying in ICU beds are almost negligible if you've been vaccinated compared with those that haven't been vaccinated. So 
the Delta virus is affecting patients that are younger than previously, as the virus was um, 12 months ago. We're seeing a totally different view. The elderly patients are not as affected as much with the Delta virus. Uh, the transmissibility to younger patients is much higher with the Delta virus, but basically a lot of these patients are younger patients are asymptomatic. So from a common sense point of view, you'd think we get the vaccination rate up, younger people are affected, the vast majority of them uh, basically have low morbidity from, from the virus. And as a result, I'd be surprised if we are actually overrun. I'd be very surprised if we're overrun in ICU. Okay. But it's certainly imperative that we get the vaccination rate as high as we can, as quickly as we can. Sure. Just on the subject of fully vaccinated people spreading the virus, right? So you've, you're fully yeah. vaccinated, you're a younger person, you've got no symptoms at all, yeah. but, but you're, still able, you're still able to spread the virus. Now, the, one of the things that was, I thought was interesting in the modelling that's been released today from the Burnett Institute, it says high rates of symptomatic testing among people who are vaccinated, high yeah. rates could reduce the impact on the health system in a scenario with vaccinated people testing at the same rate as unvaccinated people, the risk of greater than 2,500 hospital demand was reduced from 63% to 29%. So quite a significant reduction in the pressure on the hospital system, but it also says this may be difficult to achieve because people who are vaccinated are double vaccinated, and that's what we ta- that's what those key targets are, the 70%, 80% mark on the roadmap to opening up the state. And he said today very clearly, I think once we get to 80% double vaccinated, we are open, we are out of lockdown. It may even happen earlier than that. This is where the roadmap is a guide. It's, it's, it's still going to be informed by what happens during uh, passage of time. Isn't that an issue? You've got to get vaccinated. Everyone agrees with that. But the side effects of vaccination is you can be spreading the virus without any knowledge at all. That's what makes kind of the, the slightly insidious side of the uh, of, of even being vaccinated. The solution. Exactly right, Piers. It's a virus. You know, we don't have antiviral agents like we've had like we've got antibacterial agents. So irrespective of the fact that you've been vaccinated, you can still spread the virus. From a personal point of view, as we've said, the chance of having significant uh, morbidity is markedly diminished. And the rate of transmissibility if you've been vaccinated is much less than if you're non-vaccinated. But viruses don't disappear. This is one of the great reasons why I don't quite understand lockdowns. If we just think that we're going to lock people down, shove everyone in their homes, not let them go out, and then hopefully believe that miraculously this virus is just going to disappear, well, this is just not what happens with viruses. So that's why we don't understand some of the epidemiological um, modelling. It's this sort of risk aversion of the government, isn't it? That's it just, is, it yeah. is, yes. But the other thing I, I think that should happen is if we do have lockdowns, in future, then I think the government ministers should themselves take a definite pay decrease. I mean, I think seriously, any more lockdowns, they need to take a 30 to 40% pay decrease whilst the lockdown is occurring (laughs) and show some sort of sympathy for we're all in this together, as the Premier said. And you know what, Jeff? We're not all in this together. No. not in it with us. No. And and what do you reckon the chances of that happening, Jeff? Zero. (laughs) Yeah. 
Another thing which is interesting in this modelling and the, the key findings of the modelling from the Burnett Institute as released Sunday, the 19th of September, says due to uncertainty about whether the epidemic growth rate will be sustained, seasonal impacts, vaccine efficacy parameters against the Delta strain, updated projections are required as more data becomes available. Decisions to ease restrictions should be based on the latest epidemiological and health system info. So, so basically, what, what we have is a document which has got a massive caveat at the end of it, which says, hey, all of this may, may be completely irrelevant if the day-to-day data doesn't support continuing to ease restrictions. So, I mean, what people were looking for, this roadmap out of lockdown, I don't think they've got it at all today. I hate to say it. I was very disappointed myself for my family, for schooling. I was very disappointed to really see that vagueness about this. There's nothing firm about this at all. And something also, Jeff, which which I thought was amazing and I'd love you to comment on is why don't they say to people, if you're vaccinated, you can do this, that and the other. If you're double vaccinated, you and your family are double vaccinated, why shouldn't you enjoy more freedoms than the people who aren't vaccinated? No, I totally agree, Bess. I mean, if you're vaccinated, you need a personal reward. You need a reward for yourself. You need a reward for your work base. You need a reward for your family. So, I, I mean, I think this is certainly going to happen. It's going to be uh, difficult if you're not vaccinated to participate in, in a normal life. By the same token, it is interesting that in the UK and France, the passport uh, idea is actually losing momentum. Really? Um, yeah, it, it is, absolutely. So they're just talking about not having vaccine passports in the UK. I think they're just about going to bring that in. So that I find is um, pretty bizarre. One other thing I'd like to say, Pierce, is it's interesting when we're talking about when are we going to stop testing? Because if we've all been double vaccinated and then we get tested and we're close contact then really to be isolated after you've been double vaccinated for two weeks and we've been talking about reward. This is the reward I think people need. I mean, to be double vaccinated and then have to go and isolate for two weeks to me doesn't make any sense. I mean, we'll never get over this if we're going to think in this regard. Well, and this is where... This is where, I mean, surely rapid antigen testing would have a role in this, Jeff. You know, so you, you can have a kit at home. You can buy a kit from, you can mail order them in the UK now. They send you a, a pack of, uh, you know, 10 little individual separate uh, testing kits. If you're in doubt, you can do the right thing. And that's, that's just about protecting your, protecting your job, protecting your co-workers, protecting your family. The issue with not testing is going to be that it will be very difficult to to see how well your modeling is working yeah i understand that piece but when you think about it we don't really do testing for influenza people get vaccinated and then if they get sick they go to see their local doctor and if they get more sick sicker with more, more morbidity they can end up in hospital and i think this is what's my to me might be a very sensible way to look at it, this virus. And we have to look at hospital admission rates and potential mortality. Because to keep going on and test and test, at some stage we're going to have to stop testing. We can't have 50,000 to 100,000 people lining up every day 
sometimes patients are waiting for i've had patients that have waited six hours in a queue to be tested yeah now this can't go on like this this doesn't make any sense whatsoever i'm not saying don't get tested now but at some stage someone has to get up and in the plan say okay we've got this number percentage of patients double vaccinated we're going to decrease testing we're going to let people get back to normality we're going to have to stop people isolating we can have rapid antigen testing and get back to a normal lifestyle where we're social we're exercising and we're enjoying family life and hopefully this is uh not too far away we need some very good direct common sense leadership here and i'm not sure we're getting it in this state mm. There's more and more people looking to leave, you know. I mean, Queensland has had to introduce restrictions on even people who are relocated. We know people who've seen the writing on the wall and they've, they've bailed out. They're living up in Queensland where there's no restrictions. That's more by, by, more by luck than design. The reason that Queensland and WA are clear of COVID is more luck than design. Do you agree with that statement or do you think that they have actually done things better than we have in Victoria or New South Wales? No, I don't think they've done... I think the only state that's done anything reasonably well is New South Wales. I I think um, Queensland and Western Australia are still talking about and acting on elimination as a strategy. I mean, this is madness. You're never going to eliminate a virus. I don't know who's giving these politicians in Western Australia and Queensland this advice because at some stage it's exactly what happened in New Zealand. <clears throat> Jacinta Ardern said we're going to have extermination. You know, we'll, we'll get rid of this. Well, what happens six weeks, six months later, the virus returns to New Zealand. Yep. There's no virus on the South Island, but the South Island got locked down because the North Island was involved. I mean, you know, this is once again the fear, alarmism and overreaction to the virus. We're not trivialising the virus by any means. But we need to have a balanced approach. We need to have a holistic approach. We need to be able to see the positives and the negatives. Just have a very common sense, practical approach to dealing with an illness where there's not fear and alarmism. And certainly we've we've just become so uh, detrimental to our whole society. Mm. People, people, are, people out there are hurting. They're hurting badly. There is a, a reasonable amount of complexity to this. There's also different reactions from different governments, and we've got a, a hodgepodge of, of, of responses. Victorians, unfortunately, have a government that's very risk averse and is okay. taking a very, very conservative approach to this. Whereas other states are more pragmatic, and then other states have been lucky because they haven't got the they haven't had the introduction of it, and they've been able to maintain zero. And if I was trying to put myself in the shoes of the Western Australian Premier, it's not that he is is actually really thinking that elimination or maintenance of zero is possible, right? Of zero cases, zero community transmission. It's more that he sees the benefits keeping his state open. He announced a. I think it was nearly a $6 billion state surplus just recently. And clearly that's because that's because he hasn't had the hit on his economy. So he's protecting his economy just as much as he's protecting his population's health. Yeah, I totally. I mean, the price of iron ore's gone down a fair bit. He might not do as well next year. It's interesting, isn't it? He basically said, oh, when, when I'm in power, I'll make sure there's not one COVID death. I mean, that just is bizarre. They've now got their vaccine ramped up. As, as as Queensland. So I think that they are anticipating 
the introduction of the virus into their communities eventually. It's inevitable, yes. You just can't keep these viruses away. They've been with us forever and they will remain with us forever, whether it's this COVID virus, influenza virus, rhinovirus. I mean, generally people get a couple of uh, viral infections a year and it'll continue to happen as time goes on. There's absolutely no doubt about it. Absolutely zero doubt about that. Any final comments? We were all pretty geared up for what we were hoping was going to be clarity, some relaxation, you know, some some hope, some genuine hope. What do you think has got to change? I think that uh, we've got a very risk-averse government. I think they're not listening to the significant side effects of the lockdown. They're in their own little bubble. We've got people hurting in hospitality, significant problems with all aspects of society, in particular young children. Mm. And I think at some stage it's it's quite disappointing that we basically need to get out of this lockdown as quickly as we can, get people vaccinated and get on to as normal living ASAP, just, just very, very quickly. I mean, I think we've got the Chief Health Officer who's incredibly conservative, incredibly risk-averse, and he's not seeing the whole picture. He's not seeing the hardship that's occurred from the lockdown. And as we keep saying, we need a holistic approach, we need a balanced approach, and the balanced approach says that the lockdowns are doing more harm than good. And let's please, please just get back to some normality as soon as we can. What do you think about uh, reintroduction of, of kids at school, of face-to-face oh, learning? What do you think about that? I, I, basically, I, I actually think it's scandalous that children aren't going back to school. Now, people are saying, oh, well, uh, the Delta virus affects young children. Well, it does. There's no question about it. But as we've said, the the Delta virus affects young children. The morbidity from young children is absolutely minimal from the virus, but not going back to school has maximum in- impact on children's development and general well-being. Mm. I mean, the children, uh, this uh, not going back to school has had far more health consequences for children than the Delta virus ever has. Mm. I mean, it's just it's, it's as plain as the nose on your face, but the government is just not listening. The only person that's listening is James Molina, and he's the one who's trying to push for it. And I say good luck to him, because uh, we need someone in the government that has a bit of courage. I take my hat off to him. He's obviously listened to the doctors, to the health advice, rather than listening to the epidemiologists. The epidemiologists, don't, they don't see the downside. They don't sit at the table and have patients seeing the significant morbidity that patients have. They, they're just number people. They're just talking numbers, numbers, numbers. They can't have a realistic approach to risk. Thank you very much, Jeffrey Wells, consultant neurologist at Box Hill Hospital. Good to hear from you on this Sunday, the 19th of September, when we finally got our roadmap out of lockdown. But uh, unfortunately, there's lots of caveats. There's lots of vagueness. The government has not ruled out. Dan Andrews did not rule out resorting to lockdowns down the track. So unfortunately, the uncertainty and the lack of clear light at the end of the tunnel is unchanged. I agree with that exactly, Pierce. Thanks very much for having me on your show. My pleasure, my pleasure, Jeff. We'll keep in touch. You're listening to Beyond Infinity. Infinity. Thanks for listening. Remember to visit our program website, beyondinfinity.com.au, where you'll find our complete back catalogue of over 600 podcasts. That's beyondinfinity.com.au.